0: Talk to anyone like me who has moved from country to country or lived in a new country for a while and then returned home, you'll find that on any given day we're often confused about the concept of home and where that is for us. I do sometimes still feel like a stranger in a strange land. Even after being here for 25 years. When I go back to the UK, I feel the same way too. In this podcast, we're going to be talking to other strangers, and learning about their experiences, learning where and when they consider themselves to be home, and what and why they consider to be strange. We're going to learn about their challenges and their opportunities, their wins and their losses, and how their experience have changed their outlook on life and on themselves. Maybe, along the way, we might all learn something about ourselves as well. Today, my guest is Celia Wang. Originally from Henan Province in China, she moved to the US in 2015 to study for her master's degree in environmental science. Currently, Celia lives in Tallahassee, where she's a PhD candidate at Florida State University. Celia, welcome to Strangelands.
1: Thank you for having me here, I'm excited.
0: So, before we get started, why don't we talk a little bit about how we first met? Back in 2012, I went to China to teach leadership to young college women for a semester as part of a program called World Academy for the Future of Women. The program was based at CS University, which is a private university based in Henan province. Celia was an undergraduate student there at the time and was also a member of the World Academy. More importantly for me, Celia was my self-appointed guardian while I was there. If I needed something, a haircut, a guide to help me explore the city, to help me in ordering my favorite meals, or in getting traditional Chinese medicines to relieve a sore throat, Celia was the one that took care of me. Although I'd visited China before in the mid-90s, living there for three months was a very different experience. I really did feel like a stranger in a strange land, and Celia was one of a group of young women I call them my Chinese daughters, that helped to make my time in China a transitional experience for me. So, Celia, tell me what it was like for you when you first started to interact with people from outside of China.
1: It was boring. You know, I mean, I was in my home country, but I think I met the very first foreigners because they were foreigners in my home country. It was very different. I think. I wasn't sure what to expect and, you know, what behaviors would be appropriate. And also, you know, this excitement and also newness and, you know, wanting to get to know this other person, but not sure if it is welcome, you know, like not knowing the line there. But I think fortunately, a lot of the people that I interacted with mostly at CS, uh University, you know, they were either there to teach or to have an experience. People were doing a lot of things there, but they were mostly really interested in learning the local culture there. I think that made it easy. It's not just that I'm at a tourist somewhere. So I think that provided a safe platform for that intercultural conversation to happen. So it was very interesting. It was certainly out of my comfort zone. I'm not sure about the other party, but um, it was very interesting.
0: So what what I remember is you being so hungry to learn. When we talked, you wanted to learn about my life, both in the U.S. and then earlier when I was still back in the U.K., you'd ask me about my family. You'd ask me about my friends, about my work, about my hobbies and interests, and one thing I do remember is that you were always fascinated when we talk about the places I traveled in the world. So my next question for you is, when when did you first start to think that maybe you'd like to experience life outside of China?
1: Well, to make a comment on, the, um, on your earlier comments about our interactions, I think you were the very first English man, you know, like the first English people I knew, and I think And you offered a very different perspective than the other Americans that I interacted with. And so it was just a very, like you, you know, you and the other foreign teachers there were like my window to get to know the outside world because I had not traveled outside of China before that. And when I first started wanting to travel outside of China, I was actually when I was very little. I remember like... I don't know about other kids. Growing up, teachers always ask you, what's your dream? Like, what do you want to do when you grow up? I remember in fourth grade, and I, you know, after everybody talked about, you know, being a teacher, doctor, whatever. And I said, I wanted to be a diplomat and travel all across the world. And she said that, I and mean, she calls me mean as my Chinese name. She said, me nobody in the village here leaves the village. It was very, <laughs> I was very heartbroken to hear that because I'm like, you know, it sounded very unrealistic dream at the point. For a long time growing up, even when I was at CS, I just always thought that I don't want my life to be just about China. You know, I want experience what's outside of my country and you know, I was told many times that, you know, they always tell me to travel, you have to have money, you have to have, you know, other resources. I just always had this idea, I never really thought about money, <laughs> even though I didn't have it, but it wasn't my concern, <laughs> somehow magically, but um, I've just always, always been curious about, you know, when I was little, it's the life outside of the village, then when I came to the city for college, it's really was outside of... You know my circle if that makes sense
0: it does yeah I'm interested in in asking asking a follow-up question, but a, mm-hmm. about having your dreams sort of stamped on by someone and what and what that did for you at that time when, when your teacher said that because something similar to that happened to me when I was eleven so we change schools in the UK from junior school to senior school at eleven. And because there'd been a change in the education system, the school that I had to go to was not the school of my dreams. It was a pretty rough school. It it didn't really have good education, educational standards. And I remember in the first week, the first week at school, the teacher had us all sit around in a circle and we had to answer two questions. And the first question was to say what our parents did. And then the second question was to say what we wanted to do. And so, you know, I grew up in a, in a mining area, you know, mining and light engineering. And so as we went around the room, a lot of the kids were saying, you know, my dad's a miner and I'm going to go down the mines. You know, my, my mom works in a shop. My dad works in a factory. And it finally got to me and I was the last person. And I was ready to, I'd been, yeah, I was like one of those kids who would have my hand up in the air, like wanting to answer, like me, me, me. And so I got okay. to me and I said, well, you know, my my dad runs the supermarket, my mom runs a store, but I want to go to university and I want to be a scientist. And there was probably like a fraction of a second pause and all of the kids started laughing and then the teacher started laughing as well and... I remember being sort of crushed by it because up until that time, uh, because my older brothers were both at university at, at that point, or one had just finished, my middle brother was at university. I just always assumed, I'd been brought up to assume I would go to university. And like, this was the first time that anyone had really questioned it and sort of made me feel, that it was like they were trying to make me feel that my dream was stupid. So I'm, I'm interested to hear from you how that how you felt when your teacher did that to you.
1: It's always really sad that when kids have to go through that, when that's entirely not the purpose of education, certainly not the role of the teachers. <laughs> I, I'm like you. It was very heartbroken. it was just sad. i I think you know this about me, I grew up you know in a farming village when we've always been taught by you know parents, uncles, aunts, teachers that education was the only way for us to. We say walk out of the village and for them education is the way for us to really erase the rural label and go to the cities it's not a tool for emancipation or you know to to be to make a difference in society to work for the greater good it's really for you to have a you know i'm putting quotation marks again a than life Mm -hmm. instead of working the fields and facing the earth and with your back over the sun so you know it's 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 that and and i it was not the first time that happened to me being told what you can achieve or cannot achieve, and what you should be and should not be—you know—a daughter, a woman—and it's 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 very repressive. And I think it takes really, you know, great resi- resilience in really believing that you could be who you want to be. And I, I and I struggle with it because the external force is just so strong, which is why I appreciated the can make for the Future of Women that is happened. I think, should have happened to me earlier in my life is knowing that it is okay to dream.
0: I, I guess when you live and work in different countries, when you travel a lot, you tend to meet a lot of people that are, do the same thing. So, I, I put a long list of people together, and probably this should be a warning to all those people. I'm going to be coming after you to interview you as well. But I probably I probably have a list of about 50 people. But as I as I go through it, there's only a couple of people on there whose formal education has straddled two countries. You know, so for in your case, you know, elementary school, secondary school, undergraduate in China, and then masters and now PhD candidate. In the U.S. Based on your experiences, uh, how do you feel the education system and the the experience of the student differs in each country?
1: First of all, as an education major, I appreciate you having an education section on your your list of questions. I I mean, I can't claim to be an education expert on U.S. and China systems, but I think based on a personal experience, for example, like in elementary school, in China, it's very subject-based. So you have a home. This is your homeroom class. You have your Chinese language teacher, your math teacher. I mean, that was the only two subjects I studied, and that was the only thing that was offered. And um, versus here, I think you, your your teacher teaches everything, like mm-hmm. English, math, and science, whatever they teach. <laughs> and that was new to me, because. I remember, I mean, we've had our Chinese teacher one year become a math teacher or when they started offering English, the Chinese teachers started teaching English again, but that was because we were short of teachers, but you could tell that was not their expertise. So I always find that very interesting. And that's probably true with the UK system too, if I understand it correctly. Also that, you know, high school is not universal in China, it's not free. So that was new. This is might be of a rural versus urban experience. Uh, when I was in elementary school, our school hours was from eight to five. And I started boarding schools in seventh grade because um it was not one of those boarding schools like rich kids go to or anything. It was just there was no non-boarding school. I'm from seventh grade and in our school hours will start from five fifty in the morning until eight fifty at night, and we'll be in school six days a week or four weeks in a row in high school and it was just normal being in school for that long all the time and I think when I first heard kids get off school at two in the U.S. I'm just like seriously um it was like it was such a shock I'm just like how so like knowing that kids don't go to school during weekends was also new and I've always wondered if we, if, if we would actually have made a difference if we weren't in school that long. And I think their logic was that because the education quality and resources we had was very much behind compared to urban kids, and we had to compete in the college entrance exam. So, so they made us study longer, ignoring the fact that kids don't learn effectively if, they, if you lock them in the classroom for 14 hours a day or even longer than that. So, so that was very different. I mean, I didn't go to undergraduate here. So I really can't speak much to the college experience. And I do remember it was a quite culture shock or academic shock. Starting the graduate program here was this very active engagement in a seminar, you know, style class. Because, you know, in undergraduate at least in China we were not always encouraged to participate so that was I actually did not know how to engage it was you know it was not something that just come naturally it's like even the idea of knowing how I'm supposed to participate or chip in or like can I just talk you know it's 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 a very strange process I just had to observe how other kids do you know at the beginning I always think everybody else is so smart because they're always talking after a while I just realized they just like to talk so it's very different I know that doesn't mean much when I just say it's different but I, I think it's what you expect of children it's this we we call like you draw from the kids everything is already in you like drawing versus a depo- bank and deposit style so I think we are more of a deposit.
0: Given that, I mean, just thinking from that period when you started elementary school in China to today, China's changed so much as a country, advanced as a country. How, how has that impacted rural education in China? Is, is it still the same as it was when, when you were going through it or has it, has it changed now?
1: You know, I think education system probably everywhere is the most resistant to change. I I think if you look at the education status and quality of rural kids now versus my education experience 15, 20 years ago, and and sadly, it's not that much different. And kids are still going to boarding school for middle school and high school, and they're still doing long hours, and they still don't have much extracurricular subjects or activities, and and, you know, their lives have improved. When I talk to parents, teachers and kids in rural villages, people always tell me, oh, things have changed. You know, our lives have improved. We have more food. But a lot of things have not changed Is when you when you come to education quality and opportunities. And, you know, I go back home in the villages. I still see a 14, 13-year-old boy and girl wandering around the village and doing nothing thing where, migrating to cities and work at factory workers or getting pregnant or married before leave the legal marriage age. And you see the same cycle happening over and over again. And, you know, that puzzles me and it makes me wonder what can facilitate that change.
0: I know a couple of years ago, I went to an education conference and I, I went to see a presentation on a learning system. And the way that the guy who's presenting opened up, um, you know, he started his, his PowerPoint presentation. And the first picture was of a medieval classroom. And it was a tapestry that was 800 years old. And so he puts this picture up and he said, look, look closely at this picture. And he said, you know what period what country it was in and what period of time he said but look at it he said you'll see people are dressed differently but if you really look at the way the students are being educated it's really not that different from today and it was true as you looked at the picture you know there's a kid near the back of the classroom sort of asleep there are a couple of other kids who were talking and the teacher just seemed to be like droning on and wasn't really engaging with any of the students and so I, I, like like you i i wonder I'm sort of really interested now with what's happening with the pandemic, you know, and so much virtual learning, what will be the longstanding changes, you know, and how will that impact kids in in rural communities such as in, in Henan province?
1: Over the summer, we actually uh, did a project with Rural Education Action Program from Stanford University. We interviewed sixth grade parents and teachers from cities and counties and rural villages about their virtual s- schooling experiences during the lockdown in China between February and May. It was very interesting. One of the I'm still in the data analysis process, but one of the things that I, the theme that keeps coming up from parents and teachers is that when we talk about the outcomes and effectiveness of virtual school, I keep hearing is that good students are still good students and bad students are getting worse. You know, it's it's one of the things that when we talk about rural and urban inequality in, you know, access to quality education, it, it kind of this lockdown serves that like magnifying glass that really makes it more obvious and even enlarge that gap in terms of access and I think you know most of the rural kids are accessing um, virtual classes through their parents smartphones you know you have to watch a class or learn anything through a very small screen and trying to take notes and for like five six hours a day You can imagine the effects of it, and some kids don't have internet. They have to, you know, go outside for good reception in the cold, and where they have to go to a neighbor's house to borrow their Wi-Fi. You know, I'd see a lot of those class issues that come into play and the it's, it's the same story, story that and sometimes people in China are tired of five, hearing but I think that's because right. people are they used to the privilege they are don't have the entitled to and they you know don't go outside for good changes. reception. It's,
0: it's interesting in with with um, yeah, my work to to yeah, over well, well, during during the pandemic I've been working a lot with non-profit organizations that provide after-school services to kids and back very early on at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, we did a baseline assessment survey to see. You know, we wanted to see, you know, where, you know, what the issues were at that point, and you know, with a view to then being able to measure over time where we are addressing these issues. And primarily, my work has been involved with low-income communities here in Delaware. And it's interesting because we found exactly the same thing as as you did in that. You know, it was the challenges of did kids have devices did they have internet access? If they did have internet access, you know, maybe the their home was overcrowded. And so there were many people trying to use the internet at the same time. We found that, you know, what was was interesting to begin with, you know, because we hadn't sort of standard, standardized on technologies like Google Classroom or Zoom, everyone is interacting with these kids. They were all, so many were using different technologies. So kids during the day were having to jump from platform to platform and they were just fatigued. And it was interesting in the, uh, one of the foundations here actually they sort of gave the floor to a group of students to talk about that so we really got the voice of the student and oh, that that's what yeah they, they were really sort of saying you know just that just that you know they they were fatigued just how much is lost from a physical interaction and when it's back I think it's as you say the good good students will tend to do well but at sort of what cost because the, the effort they have to put in to get the same amount out can be really difficult. Yet at the same time, I mean, the, the pandemic has created opportunities. But it, uh, my, my biggest concern, like yours, is about equality. Because it really has, you know, I think, you know, the people who knew about the inequalities before, you know, were, were speaking up and people weren't really listening but well, those inequalities are much more visible now. But still for a lot of if you're on the right side of that line, you tend not to notice. It's the people <laughs> who are on the wrong side of that line that, that it's just a real challenge for them.
1: And just do just a follow up line with that is people on the disadvantaged side of the line sometimes unfortunately don't always notice that either because it's norms. I think that's 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 the sad part about it. It's People who have historically been in a a press position tend to take it as A-OK, because it has always been that way.
0: So that just reminded me of a story. So the the school I went to, which was terrible, in in the first year, the first year at senior school, our maths teacher left. And so the headmaster, who was a really horrible, horrible man, he decided he would teach the class. They didn't need to fill the position. He would teach it. And we were the top stream. And I think at the start of the term he would, he would come along and he was a really terrible teacher. But the thing was, he was also the headmaster of a school. That had just, you know, the school had just completely changed. They'd had to enlarge it. You know, when the, when the education system changed, that they'd had to enlarge the school. Uh, they've got a different population of kids now, you know, sort of a mix. Uh, you know, they've got all of these sort of uh, brighter kids, which they'd never had before. And now they're trying to work out what to do with them. And so often he just didn't show up to class. It was really interesting because I remember being so frustrated about that because I love to learn. And I looked around and like some of my peers were just really happy they had time to like mess about. But it's funny. Let's let's talk a little bit about China. And one of the questions I asked you to think about was what three words or phrases best describe your home country.
1: It's hard to come up with three words, but I I think... If I have to, if I just, I'm like being honest and without actually thinking about it, and just, if you just ask me randomly, I I would say old. It is an old country. I think there's a lot to the word old. You could say history, historical, wise, experienced, you know. We always say our 5,000 years of civilization. You know, I think there's a lot to it. The The pride of the Chinese nation comes with that history, you know. We talk about national pride a lot these days mm-hmm. um so i think old oh, is certainly the first thing and patriarchal and i think it says a lot with that too with our individualized family and societal and political so there's that and i think the last one will be beautiful we've you know it's it's a beautiful country um we have lots of beautiful sceneries and places to visit the culture the language and and you know the history and the artwork that was left and you know it's just a beautiful country
0: in total i think i've visited china four times over the years and i've probably spent about four months there and i've i've always uh found that i mean i've i've loved my time in china but if you ask me what stands out most to me it's the people. And I think, you know, when you and I met and I was at CS, that really stood out to me, you know, being able to meet just people going about their life and they were willing to talk, they were pleased to meet a foreigner. And I, I don't know whether I could have said the same, which had been the other way around, if there was a, a Chinese person visiting the UK and visiting my village if they'd had been made quite as welcome. I want to, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I know you've told, I, I've told you this story before, but one day uh, I was with one of your friends, Susanna, and we'd arranged to rent electric motorbikes for the weekend. So we picked them up and she said so Robert what would you like to do and I said well you know I'd really like to see some of China you know I'd really like to experience I said I'd like to go around back roads I'd like to see how people live I'd like to see what they do and and so we set off and Susanna took me at my word and so she would <laughs> stop and we would we would walk up to people and demand to have a conversation with them <laughs> uh, but the funniest was that Uh, And so this happened three times through the day. First time, and I don't remember, there was a little store there that someone had built themselves and the lady who ran it lived in it, she slept in it. And so we went to that store. And while we were there, there were a couple of people outside. And then later on, as we were riding around, they were in a field, they had like a market garden. And so we stopped and we walked over to them and we asked what they were growing. And they gave me this huge bunch of peanuts. Yeah, you know, they literally pulled from the ground and said, here, take some peanuts. And I had to, like, carry them on the motorbike. But the third one is the most memorable. Uh, so we we drove up to this uh, house, and it had a courtyard, and you could see there was washing hung up on a line in the courtyard. And... I, I think I realized that Susanna was like going to try and make us go and talk to the people who live there. So I'm like, oh, look, there's no one there. Let's go. And she's like, no, no, I can see someone. There's someone hanging the washing up. And I was like, no, well, they're busy. I said, well, no, we should go and talk to them. I'm like, well, Susanna, they're busy. So she said, Robert, so when you said you really wanted to meet ordinary Chinese people, you didn't really want to meet ordinary Chinese <laughs> people? And I was like, okay, you, well, you got she's me. got you. Well, should got me. So... We, we park the bikes, we walk over, and they, and it turned out the husband of the family was sat, he'd been sat in the courtyard all the time, and he was on one of those tiny little chairs, and he said, oh, co- oh come on in, come on in, and Susanna was, was translating, and they, they brought two more chairs out, and we sat chatting, You know, and so I was trying to be this polite Englishman and I was like, oh, you know, what a beautiful home you have, because it was really nice. And they're like, "Uh, yes, we are are, uh, leaving next week because the house is going to be demolished and we're moving to this block of flats. I was like, I didn't know how to respond to that. I was like, oh, 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 okay, well. And like, yeah, all the people around, they're all moving. And so I was trying to really look on the bright side. I'm like, well, you know, at least you'll be near your neighbors. Like, I, just, I didn't know what to say. And, and so we, we talked for, for a long time. And they were telling me about their kids who, as you, they, they'd done well through education and they were working off in big cities. I really thought, you know, I, I might have overstayed my welcome. Oh, oh plus they fed us. Like, literally, the oh,
1: yeah.
0: husband said, uh, are you hungry? And we're like, no, no, we're fine. Like, oh, no, you'll have some soup. So I, th- so I said yes, thinking they'd already had the soup. It was ready. But the wife went off and made the soup. And yeah. so we were talking with the husband. And then after the soup, it's like, okay, I, I, I really, you know, I really should go now. And they're like, no, no, you know, you're fine. And so I'm looking at Susanna and I'm thinking, oh, okay, maybe I will say I'm tired. So I said, oh, I'm, 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 I'm very tired. You know, this has been wonderful, but I need to go back. And they're like, oh, if you're tired, you could borrow our bed and you could go and have a sleep. It was (laughs) just this, it was just so charming that, that these people just open, you know, Sunday afternoon, they were minding their own business. And there's this English guy turns up on a scooter They just went out of the way just to be, well, they were just themselves. It it was a beautiful memory for me.
1: If it is okay to ask, I'm wondering though, how much do you think the, you know, the welcoming and the generosity experience was, Is much of a privilege being a foreigner there. And I'm sure like my people are very kind and nice, you know what I mean? But how much do you think it's a privilege being a foreigner there?
0: Oh, I think you're right. I mean, and I think about, I think about my experience here, you know, many, many places in the US I go to, as soon as someone hears that I'm English, their attitude changes to me. Often, you know, they'll become predisposed to like me. They'll find what I say funny. They'll be inquisitive. You know, they'll have lots of questions. But it's funny because when I've been to other parts of the world, that's, that's not always been the same. And I'll give you an example. I I went to visit family in Australia, and I was in Sydney, uh, and I just went to get on a bus, and I gave the bus driver a ten dollar bill, and he and and it turned out he was very much against uh, Australia being a Commonwealth country, and he decided to take it out on me. So he said, you know, see here, this banknote. What right does your queen have? on being on our on our banknotes and you know we're our own country and I was I was like I only wanted to go to the opera house um, it was it was it was very strange so I think you know certainly the experience I told you about in China you know I I look so different but you can sort of drill down into sometimes if you sound different
1: yeah, it's a very good point, because they imagine, you know, the geopolitical, and you know, historic culture, part of it certainly plays a role, like, imagine, I and mean, you don't have to put this in the podcast. like, imagine the, the treatment would, someone would have in a rural village in China, someone from Japan, that would be a very dramatically different experience.
0: What has been the most annoying question
1: <laughs> anyone
0: has ever asked about, about China?
1: This is not even something specific. It's like, how is China like? I absolutely hate that question. I was just like, what are you asking? You know, like, oh, they will say, how is China different than the US? I'm like, like, how would you answer if I ask you how is America like? Or how is the UK? You know, it's just like not asking anything specific. Or they, I mean, I guess they probably don't know enough about it mm-hmm. to ask anything specific. But if you ask me, how is it? dinner table minors, different, you know, like, ask me something specific. And I just always find that maybe they're just asking. I don't know. I always find that really difficult to answer. And I just get annoyed. (laughs) Has anyone asked you, like, how's the UK like?
0: If I think back to the most annoying questions that anyone has ever asked, they've probably been questions by Americans, but years ago. so, So before I ever lived here, I was leading a project. I was I was working for DuPont. I was leading a global project. And all of my team, with the exception of me, were from outside the UK. The majority were from here in the US. And so I would come over here every couple of months and, and spend a week to two weeks. And then I decided that everyone should come to the UK, it was important they got, you know, for the work that we were doing, it was important they got a sense of what the other plant sites were like. And I remember there's this one guy, you know, he was a Vietnam veteran, so he'd traveled. I think he sort of viewed himself as worldly, but I, I remember th- that he started asking me questions and it was pretty clear that he didn't trust the water in England and he, and, and I think he was worried that we didn't have like toilets. And I, I remember, and I, I completely didn't, you know, because he he was sort of asking in a roundabout way. I don't, I think he he was sort of embarrassed, but he was sort of concerned, you know, like, and whether he was getting us confused with sort of those French style toilets where you squat. But he did, he didn't ask the question directly, and so I I just didn't really understand what he was saying. And then when he did, I was like, we invented the flushing toilet, like <laughs> that—that's an English invention. And it was like, but 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 can you drink the water? I'm like, yeah, yes, you can drink the, yes, you can drink the water. And I guess it's, a, I guess it was a valid question, you know. But I think it's back to that when you were talking about national pride before, you know. I'm coming from an old country. Uh, I mean, when you and I talk, you know, I'm from the young country. I mean, we've only got sort of uh, <laughs> two thousand years of history. When I talk to people here, I, I know when I first moved here, I would talk to people. Yeah, because I just took for granted. Like in my hometown is called Chesterfield, and so one thing about English place names, if there is Chester in the name or any version of Chester, so it could be Cester, so like Leicester, or Mm -hmm. uh, Sirencester, or Caster, Lancaster. When there's a Chester or some. Uh, derivative in the name, that means it was a Roman fort or encampment. And so, you know, where I grew up, you know, now and then they'd be excavating some building. I remember they were building sort of a supermarket in the city and they dug down to get the foundations and they found Roman remains. And there was a remains of a Roman villa a few miles away, you know, where they'd uncovered it. And they found there was this magnificent mosaic tile floor. Yeah. And when you grow up in, in an older country, you just take those things for granted. And, and so I remember being here, you know, when people were asking me about England, you know, and I, I, I'd sort of say something and and literally the conversation would stop because they were just sort of blown away that things could be so old and and probably that I just took it for granted. And so I don't I don't know about you but I I found I have a much deeper appreciation of English history since I've lived here.
1: Yeah, people don't seem to ask me about Chinese history a lot or they probably don't know much about it. And, right. I mean I get some of the superficial insulting questions like oh do all Chinese people eat dogs or you know one of those Taiwan questions that is usually that I don't welcome those discussions when we first meet like if I've known you like this I could be up for a very genuine conversation about it but like when I first meet you you ask me if I'm from China or Taiwan that's insulting and that happens every time you know I, I think but that's I still rank the how China like question the first most annoying
0: I think it's interesting because I think the difference between our two countries is that so much of UK history is represented in American popular culture. So, you know, where I'm from, the fictional hero Robin Hood, who stole from the rich and gave to the poor, that was set about 20 miles from from where I grew up. And so... You know, if people ask me where I'm from in the UK, sometimes I'll tell them that fact. Oh, you know, from near where Robin Hood didn't actually live because he didn't really exist. And they'll, they'll be like, oh, OK. And it's almost that they get they feel very comfortable, like they know something about my country. They know something about me because I've referenced something that that's within their popular culture.
1: If you look at what they teach in the history class in the U.S. education system, I, I'm pretty sure they European history has a larger proportion than what they call the Oriental history. You know, I'm not surprised that a lot of them don't know much about Chinese history. It's probably not mentioned much in the history books. I think that that's a very interesting, that's a very good point. And, And you look at, of course, the political system part plays a huge role in this. I think the UK probably has a much more friendly image in the U.S. than China, especially the communist China.
0: Okay, so we've 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 talked about what you don't like people to ask you. What what are the things you'd love them to ask about, but they never do?
1: You know, I think some most people want to learn about other people's culture. They they want to ask questions. I think they don't always ask the right questions. I'd really hope to talk about my language. And people ask me if I speak Mandarin. Or they, they asked me the difference between Mandarin and Cantonese. But, the, you know, those very superficial questions. But, you know, there's a lot to our language. You know, when we talked about the history, the 5,000 years of wisdom, it's all embedded in the language, the development of the language and, you know, our classic Chinese literature and, and you know, the philosophy embedded in the language and you know the wisdom it's there's a lot in it and i'm very part of my language and i'm glad it's my first language because even in learning how to write the characters there's you know there's a lot of stories in the character why is it written this way how it has evolved over time you know from traditional to simplified and even the part you know the strokes you know, it's like every word has its own history. And there's so much beauty and wisdom in it. But nobody ever asked me. So I, I, I just wish people could learn. I, I think it's a window for people to understand the culture and the people and the country. And I think it's, it's a shame that it's not being paid attention to.
0: I agree. My last, my last question about China... So if there was such a thing as teleportation and you could choose to teleport back just for a day to China, where, where would you go and what would you do?
1: I want to go to Tibet, I think. Well, mainly because I have not, not been to Tibet. And there's a place that actually near Tibet called Shangri-La, like the hotel. Mm-hmm. But it's a beautiful place. It's very high altitude. In China, we have the saying, that's the closest place to paradise. Actually, the most direct translation is actually heaven, but I, I use, sometimes use the word paradise because some people find it offensive. It, it, I've been there. It's like this gorgeous place with like mountains and sheep and cows and, you know, green areas. And it's close to, to that but not close enough that I have been. So I think I would just take the train to Lhasa and just be there and experience and breathe the clean air we say that we go there to purify ourselves. i think i like to do that if i could just travel there for a day
0: okay so let's let's talk about your life here in the u.s so when you think about your 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 time here what behaviors or activities do you see here that just have you scratching your head
1: i i think it's the implicit and explicit systematic racism And that's somehow accepted so widely. I I know, you know, we have talked about where there has been a lot of debates and, you know, conversations about systematic racism, but it's just me being a foreigner here that the, the racism remarks and attitudes that experience on a daily basis it's, its something that's shocking in a way that it's so embedded in our everyday operations and so widely accepted. I'll give you an example. I mean, okay. I have like thousands of examples, but I'll give you a most recent one. I went to see an endocrinologist a couple of weeks ago. Well, I'll make it clear that she's this doctor. She's from Columbia. She went to medical school in Columbia, but she did her residency, I think, in Miami. I don't think I put in my chart or my new patient form as I'm from China.
0: Mm-hmm. So she
1: walked into the patient waiting room and she looked at me and she said, what are you doing in Tallahassee? And I'm like, I assume she means I don't live here. I don't belong here. I'm not from here, whatever she meant. And I said, well, I'm a PhD student at FSU. And then, you know, then we got to talk about, you know, my problems, whatever. And then she keeps making the remarks about, oh, people in China. A lot of people in China have a lot of these problems for this nuclear explosion. I'm like, we don't have a nuclear explosion. <laughs> I've never had one. But anyway, and then we started talking about my weight. So and then she said that, well, you look fine, but I think you're about three pounds away from your maximum weight. I'm like, how? But then she said that, well, the, the usual body weight index does not work for you because of ethnicity. That's for Americans. And then she said, I think it's probably good if you lose two pounds, because all of your people are pretty slim back home, right? And I was like, did she just tell me that I'm fat? And I was like, and she also told me, I don't know which one is more hurtful. She's like, well, you are turning 30. Everything is going to go down here and start declining. Ooh. So as I drove home, I'm like, did she t- just tell me that I'm old and fat? And I was, I, it took me a long time to digest it. And I'm like, was she being racist? I'm just like, and I'm pretty sure that whatever body image is like, not different across ethnicities. <laughs> I mean People have different body types and I get that. And I, I think she, I was being judged based on social and cultural stereotypes versus scientific evidence as a medical professional would do you know, but no, was just, um, yeah, it was just one of the examples that I encountered every day.
0: It's strange. I mean, I know you and I have talked about this before, but, you know, I, I, get, I get the opposite. And I've talked to other English people here about that. And, so, and it's interesting. I, I, years and years ago, I knew someone who was a um, PhD student at Temple and she was English. And I forget what her dissertation was originally supposed to be about. You know, so she'd done her undergrad in the UK. She came here and she started on, on one specific topic. And then she, she switched. And the reason she switched was that she noticed that people were treating her as if she was more intelligent than she felt she was. And she made that the topic of a dissertation. And she wrote uh, her, her PhD dissertation became a book. And I have a copy of the book somewhere. I should, I should find it. Yeah, but it was fascinating because what came out was that if you have an accent like mine here, you're assumed to be 15 or 20 IQ points smarter. And, uh, you know, and certainly you're assumed to be funnier. Um, you know, when I've be- become more conscious about systemic racism, you know, and I've really thought about that. It, it sort of applies to me, but like the opposite. But it's it's yeah. still the same sort of thing, that people have this set of preconceived ideas that go along with the way you look or you sound. And it's so hard to, it's hard to break out of them. It, it's like certain things are wired in a certain way here.
1: It's like when people ex- expect me to be smart at math and I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't like math. I'm, I can be good at it, but I don't like it. And we a lot I use like the stereotypical thing, like all oh, Asian kids are good at math, it's because we work hard, you know it's it's I just absolutely hate it, especially it's funny because there was this Chi- Chinese student in a class one day he said that he does quantitative research because math is very easy for him because he's Chinese, and I sat down, listen, I'm like, I go away like." <laughs> Cause you know, it's just like why are you stereotyping yourself? It's um, it's an it's frustrating, and you know, and it was was the current political environment. You know, when people make ask me, "Oh, did you bring the virus here with you?" Like you know, the spy question I get asked. It was. I think one of your questions to ask about, and I didn't mean to jump around, but I, since we're already here, is what would advice would you give to people who are thinking about moving to another country is be prepared to be alienated because a foreign country is a foreign country. You are a foreigner to this country and you know I, I always when I get my tax return form every year you know I get non-resident alien tax form then mm-hmm. I've been here five years now I'm a resident for tax purposes but it says resident alien so I'm always I'm just an alien and I was
0: I, re- I remember when I was first here you know I came on a work visa but but all the paperwork you know it, it doesn't make you feel loved when you're called either non-resident or, or permanent resident alien.
1: Exactly. It's very insulting. It, it's it, you know, it's written black and white, <laughs> right. asking you to pay taxes as an alien. We've talked about this a lot. There are a lot of benefits. You know, I would do it all over again if I had to choose, but it's really expect being an alien and being alienated by the people there. I think it, I don't know how you can get away with it.
0: Okay, so my, well, so my next question is, and I was going to ask, what do you do at weekends or on vacation that's different from home? But I think, you know, as, as we come up to Thanksgiving, and I think Thanksgiving this year is going to be different for everyone, but, but typically, how do you spend your time in a way now as you've more assimilated to being here in the US, you know, you've got lots of American friends surrounded by American culture. How, how do you spend your spare time differently than you would have done at home?
1: I don't know how much of it is has to do with the American culture or anything. I think spend more time alone and I read more. I think this might be more personal versus like a cultural experience. Um, well, maybe it is because in, in China, it's a very collective society and people are always hanging out with friends or as groups and... There's not much encouragement for, you know, being alone or individualism. And probably because I'm in a foreign country, I just spend more time alone and and I read more. It's more calm for me. It's like in China, everybody is just always trying to do something, I suppose, or, you know, playing on the phone. Or I just read more than I did in China. I have more time. I have more time for myself to think. I don't think I ever had time to think in China. Everybody's everything is just so fast paced, and you're trying to get to mm-hmm. the next go or meet the next connection or or you know. Especially, I think one of the your question talk about work. I didn't pick that question, but it's almost like mandatory for you to socialize with your coworkers after work. Otherwise, you're considered not groupy. Like you're trying to be outside of the group, or like you don't fit. You know, and you don't really had much of a time on your own I think I was always running you know I was trying to meet up expectations of me or of others or my colleagues and I just never had time to sit and think
0: it's funny you should say that about expectations because certainly when I first moved here my experience was different You know, because in in the UK culture, my first 12 years of my career were in the UK. You know, I had my daughter, I was married. I had my daughter while I was in the UK. We would still, you know, the people that you worked with were sort of friends as well. um, And we would do things outside work. And I remember being surprised when I got here that that just didn't be seem to be the case. And and I, I thought a lot about it. Where I came out was that, and I think it's different in different stages of life here. So if, if you're single, then I think it's exactly as you said, that people, you know, there's this expectation, you do things, they're happy hours, there's whatever. But when, once, once people have a family here, I found it becomes all about the family. And if you're from outside, it's really hard to break into that. You know, I saw more of families doing things together in the UK that was pretty common and here I saw more of no I'm you know uh, I can't do something because I'm doing something with my family and it, it was just within that family unit so I would say well we're coming to the towards the end of our time so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you one final question how has the experience of living in a different country both changed and and shaped your view of the world
1: Great question, because I wrote it, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's the $64,000 question. That's it. Everything we've talked about leads up to that question.
1: I think, I don't know, we've talked about this before. We all know that education is not neutral. It's always political. I I think part of the reason I wanted to study abroad is I don't always want to see the world the China way. You know, it's like education made your educational experience made a pair of glasses and they put them on you and that's how you see the world and i Mm -hmm. like to make my own glasses and contacts whatever (laughs) so i i think it's is learning to consume you know information like what was said to me or taught to me more critically and also i like to think i've always been more open-minded but really work on being open-minded and the willingness to challenge the, already, the existing like educate, knowledge system within myself that you know I've constructed over the years and I, I don't know if I've told you but I remember this particular moment and you're gonna laugh at me when I say this and I'm at a coffee shop I hope people don't hear this too loud is when I realized that you know I grew up being taught that communism is the best system in the world. That's the end system of capitalism. When I realized that that is not true, that the world is not gonna like a you know, hundred something countries are not all gonna develop into communism one day, there was this massive intellectual pain, like so ache. It was very painful because to realize that what I've been taught since first grade, all the way through college, the Eighteen years of education was not true, and then you start doubting what else have you been taught that is not true? Then you start questioning and you're like, Do I need to examine everything single thing I know? where well, it's also intellectually lonely mm-hmm. then you you feel i don't know it's just this it's like this vast space that you all of you felt like you've made a mistake in your i don't know intellectual inquiry journey I, I i think that was a point that i realized that you know not everything here that's being taught to the kids is true you know there's always propaganda communism propaganda capitalism propaganda but it's just really trying you know where as fast as i could you know to to analyze the information that i read and see and hear more critically that was that was a turning point for me
0: I mean, we've talked a little bit about this before. I think one of the things I see is that, so I agree, like if you stay within the system that you were, you were sort of born into, it's like you've got these guidelines li- guide and they've been reinforced your whole life. Um, and if you don't step outside of them, you know, you know it's like, oh, if you, you know, don't cross that line because bad things may happen and don't cross this line on the other side, and you, so you tend to stay within those lines. And then when you're up and move to a different country, th- there might be a set of lines there, but they're not your lines. And, and I think I've learned to question things that I grew up believing by first questioning the things that I was seeing here of, you know, and I think, I think particularly, you know, and I, I'll, I'll preface this remark by saying I absolutely, I love America. I love being American. It's a country that I chose to be a citizen of. But what I, what fascinates me is that for so many people in in the US, it's there is this belief that this is the best country in the world. It's the best country that's ever been. It's the best country know, that
1: will right? ever
0: be. And I'm like, well, no, no,
1: it's not. <laughs> no,
0: you know, it you know, and, and particularly, I'm interested in the happiness index and start to measure a country on things like GDP. You know, and with China, you could say, oh, well, you know, China's GDP has grown so much, it's gone from here to there in record time. But really, I mean, for me, the measure, you get back to the people on the street, you get back to people in the villages and say, you know, are you happy? Are you fulfilled? Are you contented? And that's the way I want to measure things. And so... It's it's strange. There there are, there are so many things that I really love about America, but then there'll be things that just really frustrate me. And and I want to sh- sometimes I'll be talking to people who just are just they're very rigid, like they're in those guidelines. And it's almost this. They'll say, to you, but you do know you are in the best country ever. Uh, and I sort of want to say, well, no, no. Like let's let's talk about that. And, and usually I just don't bother. You know, I do wish more people had the opportunity. I mean, it's one thing to be a tourist. You know, I'm going to visit. 10 countries in 10 days and tick, I've, che- yeah. I've checked off Europe, but I actually take, take a little more time, really visit a place, fall in, into the pace of life wherever they are. You know, going back to when you and I met when I was at CS, you know, our, our ritual of you waiting outside Peter Hall, accommodation for foreign faculty every morning, and we go together and have breakfast, I just loved that pace, you know, of of adjusting to a world that was very different from mine. And, and I find if you if you do that, if you take enough time to slow, slow down, it just makes you a lot more receptive to seeing what's going on around you and being open to, to learn about that. So and, and that I mean that that really is why I wanted to do this podcast. Cause I think those of us who have had that experience of of living and working in different countries. I really do think, you know, we come out of it. If if we stop stop and reflect for a moment, we we sort of get insights about our home country, we we have insights about the place that we're living. But most importantly, I think we have insights about ourselves.
1: You know, knowing what's outside of your own beliefs and cultures and norms and being more open about it is okay that other people don't live the way I do i think it humbles us and i think that's important i would be very interested in hearing your other podcasts and thank you for this brilliant idea and providing the space for the strangers to talk about the strangeness so
0: i have i have one final question and this is this is because i know you and love you so uh, we are going to see each other many times in the next five years but let's jump forward to five years from today. Where will you be in five years?
1: Five years from now, I would have already been Dr. Wang, hopefully. I should be an assistant professor somewhere, hopefully at a university that's close to the ocean, if I could choose. I will say, though, I hope that I'll be able to tell you that I'm still passionate about my research. I still remember my dreams I'm still working on or having already set up my school back home in rural China. And I'm still a stranger in a strange land, still an alien, but I'm still dreaming. I hope that I can see that in five years to you.
0: I have no doubt that you will. I, I want to say thank you for this time. What you just said is making me emotional. You know I get very emotional, but it was beautiful. Uh, I, am, I am absolutely sure you will still be dreaming. And many of those dreams will you'll have brought to life and you'll be doing big and important things in this world. So thank you.
1: Thank you.